0: Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Moore. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, glad to be with you and glad you are with us. If you want to open your Bibles to the book of Mark, we'll be starting a new series. And uh, you'll notice in your bulletin that we'll be uh, looking at chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm also going to read chapter 10, uh, verse 45 here in a second. Um, but just a, a quick... just. A review of what we do or what we like to do uh, when we start new series, or how we think about our preaching and teaching from the pulpit. If if, if you haven't heard us talk about this before, but we like to go through books uh, as much as we can because context is king, and also um, we like to sit in that book and understand why it is written and uh, to whom, and and what are its purposes, so that we might better understand that book as a whole. And so we, we will start this book, uh, the, the Gospel of Mark. Today, And we will go through it all the way up until about May, I believe. And hopefully by then I have a good understanding of, 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 of this gospel as opposed to sort of pulling out verses here and there. So with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in the gospel of Mark. This will be chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. And then flipping over to chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We pray and ask God to teach us his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray now that uh, as my words go out, uh, that you would um, open our eyes and, and ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not because of your spirit. And anything that would go out from my mouth that would not bring you glory or be true, that you would close our ears and our eyes, uh, that we would only see you and your truth. We ask this for your glory alone. Amen. Uh, this morning, this will simply serve as an introduction to our series and an introduction to our book. Um, and so that's, that's really my aim. Uh, first, I want to look at just our series in general. Um, Bob Dylan wrote a song that some of you probably are familiar with titled, Gotta Serve Somebody. And in that song, he writes this, Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And while Dylan, of course, did not discover this truth, he simply wrote a song about it. All of us serve somebody or something. All of us are followers of something. Uh, You might even say we're disciples of something. We were made for that. We were made to serve something. And the question, of course, is what is it? Another way to say this is that we are followers, disciples of some king or something we have put upon that throne so to speak. Who is it? What is it? Who are we serving? Ultimately, especially if Dylan is right, we got to serve somebody. Um, We will be seeking to answer these questions and others like it as we uh, look through uh, the book of Mark, and especially at our series titled there, Discipleship and the Kingdom of God. What Mark really wants his reader, as we will see, as we hope to present, what Mark really wants for his or her reader is to answer that question, is who who will you follow? Who are you following now? And there's this underlying assumption that I want us to notice throughout this series here as well, that all of us, in fact, are following someone or something. We are all disciples or followers of a kingdom or rule, if you will, whether it's the kingdom of God whether it's the kingdom of of Rome that we will look at here in a second, or maybe it's the kingdom of America or the kingdom of stuff, right? Or the kingdom of sports, of money, whatever. We serve something or someone. To be more specific, we all put something or someone on a throne and we ask it to be God for us. This is an assumption the Bible has about us because this is what we're created to do. And so we ask that something to give us something in, 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 in an exchange for our devotion and for our service. And Mark wants us to ask, who or what is that? Is it, is it doing what you're asking it to do? Is it giving you all that it has promised to give you? Because if it isn't, and, and of course Mark knows that it isn't, let me show you somebody else. Let me show you Jesus. And this is what Mark intends to do for us as we go through his gospel um, much of what we'll look at as well um, concerning our topic of discipleship and the kingdom of God Is also the cost of discipleship And, you know, believe it or not The things that we give our lives to, the things that we enthrone The things that we look to for meaning in life They cost us something uh, Everything costs us something Even Jesus, as we'll see in a second, asks us for something if we are to follow him Um, But discipleship of any kind or matter, any kind, uh, shape or form, it it isn't cheap. And what we serve or follow uh, costs us more than we probably even realize it is costing us. You might think of a simple uh, king that we serve often, such as money. And if money is our king, then something is often attached to that kingdom in order to belong to it. And Mark would describe that as discipleship. Whatever that is that is attached to that kingdom. And that's what what it will cost us. Maybe it's subtle. Uh, Maybe it's it's subtle like uh, working extremely long hours at the office. um, Just because, you know, you want to work hard and provide for your family. What's wrong with that? Well, there's a cost there. And Mark wants us to understand that and look at that and weigh those costs. But at the same time, he wants us to see... What it might cost us to follow Jesus as well. Because attached to Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom that the church professes, is also a cross. And that is costly. Jesus will tell us in the coming chapters of Mark to follow him. We must deny ourselves and what? Take up our cross in order to follow him. That is what it costs. For Jesus was attached to his kingdom as a cross. Are we aware of that? What does that look like for us? Um, have we been ignoring the cost of discipleship to follow Jesus? Uh, what type of Jesus are we even following? All of these and much, many more questions like it are questions that Mark unearths for us and wants us to, uh, to look at, perhaps maybe uh, for the first time for many of us or maybe for the thousandth time, but to do it afresh, uh, to see who it is that we are truly following, what kingdoms we belong to and what it might look like to dethrone those bad kings and to put up the real king, King Jesus, to follow him, regardless of the cost. Well, this morning, as I said, I just want to set the stage for this gospel uh, of Mark. Um, why he wrote it and to whom. Because, as we said earlier, as I said earlier, context is king. And I think that if we, if we do some work on the front end to understand this book a little bit better, it'll help us, as we go through it, uh, to understand what Mark is writing what is he writing about and to whom? First, the, who is Mark to begin with and when did he write this gospel? I'm going to give you a, some, some details here uh, briefly. Mark's full name is John Mark. And this is confusing because he comes up a lot, a, in a lot of places throughout the New Testament. Sometimes just as Mark, sometimes as John Mark, sometimes as John. Okay, um, But he's everywhere. Uh, Interesting enough, Mark is the one who had a very shaky beginning uh, in the ministry when he abandoned the apostle Paul on Paul's first missionary journey. And you can read about that in Acts 13. Um, One one commentary uh, writes this about it. it. says, Paul was so unhappy with him that he refused to take him on his second missionary journey, which I would do the same. Thus beginning a bitter quarrel between Paul and Barnabas that ended with Paul and Silas going one way and Barnabas and Mark going another. You can read about that in Acts chapter 15, verse 37. They would reconcile later when Paul was imprisoned in Rome. But it goes to show that God is always in the business of using our mess for his purposes. He is never done with us. Mark is is believed to have written his gospel in Rome with Peter. Uh, No later than 70 A.D., but perhaps even as early as 40 uh, A.D., somewhere in there. But he recorded what Peter saw. He recorded what, what, what Peter heard. He recorded much of what Peter preached about. Much of Mark's gospel is actually from Peter, the Apostle Peter's sermons. And it is his connection to and with Peter, who was an apostle, that gives Mark's gospel who wasn't a disciple of Jesus, uh, it's credibility, um, it's authenticity. And so we look to that uh, to understand why it is that we trust Mark's gospel. It's because he was with Peter who was with Jesus. What you will notice also about Mark's gospel, and uh, it's just some little homework, I I would encourage you to go home and just sit down and try to read the gospel in one sitting. You'll notice something if you do that. It'll take you about an hour and a half. Um, We all got that, right? just sit around and read this. But Mark's gospel uh, has an incredible pace to it. It runs. And you'll read words like immediately, over and over and over again, immediately this, and and new new chapters starting with the book, and as if, as if Mark is, is is just rushing us towards something, and, and, and you know what he is. Mark's purpose is, is to, to rush us, to go, direct us towards the cross as soon as possible. There are two focal points, though, in his gospel. We're going to Go really fast to chapter 8, where we read of Peter's confession. Who do you say that I am? Which is a mark of discipleship and kingdom. And then at the end, in chapter 15, perhaps maybe the climax of his gospel, where the Roman centurion, who gazes upon Jesus on the cross, says these words, Truly this man was the Son of God. Bill Lane uh, says this about Mark's gospel, that it is the death of Jesus with a long introduction. Everything is moving at rapid pace towards the cross in pursuit of our confession as well. Are we with this Jesus or are we not? Who are we following? Who are we serving? Because you know what? We all got to serve somebody. Who is it? What I want to spend the rest of our time on, though, is who did Mark write to and why? And uh, with with this, uh, there are a lot of uh, folks who I am uh, unashamedly grabbing a lot of their work and research, but I think it's helpful for us to get into the story a little bit, the context of why he is writing and what it might mean for us today. Um, Mark is writing primarily to Gentile Christians in Rome. And what we know about Mark's gospel comes to us uh, in the writings of a man named Tacitus. Tacitus was Italian by blood and a historian by trade. Around 110 AD, he published a book called Annuals. Now, Tacitus lived through a period of Rome's greatest success... Of the fragments that we have of this book, annuals, there is a place in in book 15, article 44, which begins with the simple phrase, And disaster struck. Tacitus was writing about a time some 50, 60 years prior to this, and given Tacitus' age and reputation around town, uh, he was considered a a very reliable source. Think about watching something from Ken Burns or maybe reading something uh, from David McCullough, all reliable sources, such was Tacitus. But at this particular time in Rome's history, a guy named Nero was emperor of Rome. And he was looking to build himself uh, a monument called the Golden Palace, according to Tacitus. And he looked over Rome, and there wasn't really enough room for him to to build his palace. Rome was one of the biggest cities at this point in time. It was the biggest city in in, in the Roman Empire, about 1.5 million people. And it was very, very crowded. And as Nero looked around, according to Tacitus, uh, around the city in search of a place to put his palace, he saw that there was this large area around the Circus Maximus. Think of that oval track and Ben-Hur. That was full of, of vendors taking advantage of all the money in the exchange during uh, race times. But outside, past those vendors, were all these slums. Where thousands and thousands of people lived just to try to make a living here with Rome. Shanty shantytown is what you might call this. And Nero thought to himself, those shops around the circus are filled with flammable material. If I could find a way to empty that disgusting slum, there'd be plenty of room for my palace. And so one night, Nero and some advisors quietly slipped out of the city. That evening, mysterious gangs of men carrying torches began to throw them into the shops, and people desperately tried to stop them but could not. And in a very short period of time, The whole slum was ablaze. And at this point, Nero's plan is going perfectly. But then, as Tacitus writes, disaster struck. As history reports, the wind changed directions and took the flames in the opposite direction of the slums and into the more affluent areas of the city where senators and government buildings and libraries existed In a very short period of time, most of Rome was burned. Uh, Ten out of the 14 provinces were burned. Three of those provinces to the ground. Tacitus tells us that it took two weeks just to bring the fire under control. Rome wasn't planned very well in those days, and so firefighting equipment couldn't really get through the narrow streets. The cleanup would be monstrous. So the emperor did what any suspicious emperor might do. He would sort of enact this urban renewal program. Right? Nero had ash carried away and put outside the city. He set new codes for construction, building with bricks that would be fire deterrent. He built parks and he enlarged the streets. He even lowered the price of grain so that people during these hard times wouldn't be pinched so much just to feed themselves. No matter how much he did, though, he found that he wasn't moving in the direction that he wanted to in the polls, so to speak. People were not looking at this and seeing, uh, oh, well, this must not have been Nero. This must have been somebody else. He was still being blamed for the fire. And so politically speaking, Nero was in a tough spot. He needed to find somebody to put this blame on. He needed to find a scapegoat, if you will. And he knew just who would be great for that. At the time, there was a relatively small but annoying growing cult that had grown up out of the area on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean in a place called Palestine. They called themselves Christians or little Christs or followers of the way. Strange rumors surrounded these people. They followed, according to Tacitus, a man whom they called Christus, whom they claimed had risen from the dead. But the only Roman record of this Christ was a zealot, who was executed by crucifixion. These strange people were rumored to be cannibals because they ate the flesh and drank the blood of their master. They were considered incestuous because they always referred to one another as brothers and sisters. What they called the Lord's table was also a, quote, love feast. If you think people today think Christians are strange, you should try the first century of all the rumors, though, what annoyed Romans the most was that they referred to this executed Jew as Curios or Lord. That name was forbidden to be used by anyone except Nero and so Nero thought to himself, "They are perfect." So Nero followed through with his plan to make these Christians the scapegoat in order to fix his reputation among the people of Rome. He began to arrest Christians and obtain information through torture. It got bad. And so began the first century Holocaust in Rome towards Christians. Executions of Christians were common everyday occurrences during this time. Scholar William Lane cites uh, Tacitus' annual saying that Nero would have Christians sewn inside, inside wild animal skins, only to have dogs who had been starved and leased to tear them apart. Christians were crucified or turned uh, into human torches to light the grounds at night, listen to how Tacitus ends this account in his writings. He says, although these Christians deserve to be punished for their stubbornness, they wouldn 't recant. the people of Rome were rather moved to pity, for they saw that they were suffering not for the crime of arson but to satisfy one man 's cruelty now. I want you to imagine for a second, if you can, that you are there. You're in Rome. You are hearing about this for the first time. What do you do? What do you offer these people? Do you send money? Do you tell them to get the heck out of here? What do you do? Well, Mark decides to do something that hadn't been done before, he decides to write them a gospel a proclamation, if you will, an announcement, because that's what a gospel is. See, a gospel isn't some biography of someone, say, uh, you know, like if you were watching a biography of of some person like Elvis, Uh, but it also isn't just an eyewitness account, such as a, a documentary. A gospel is an announcement about some good news that has occurred. Is it news that an army is on its way to take out Nero? Nero? No. Is it news that Rome itself has outlawed the persecutions of, persecution of Christians? No, that won't happen for another 300 years. What is Mark's good news all about? What is this message, this, am- this announcement? And it's right there in verse 1 that we read this morning, the first verse of his book, the beginning of the gospel. Of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is his announcement. This is what he does for these people. Perhaps that's not the news you were expecting as you await your death. For Mark, though, there is no better news to give somebody than this. The gospel or euangelion, which means good news that some of you might have heard before, or glad tidings, this term is present in many of our ancient Greek texts that we have, not just the scriptures, because this term is there to announce something, right? Often a victory of sorts by the king for his people. With the words of the euangelion came then great celebration and festivity, because it typically meant your king or armies had won some battle. In the Old Testament, the term is used to describe, as one scholar puts it, God's kingly reign. His victory over his enemies and the arrival of salvation. In Isaiah 40, the herald of good news announces and inaugurates the new era of God's kingly rule. And well, guess how Mark intends to use Evangelion in his letter. Yes, the same way. As an announcement an inauguration of the new era of God's kingly rule. Except the arrival of God's kingdom has not come as a movement that many had expected, but in a person. See, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, Christ is a title, as many of us may be aware. It is the Greek translation of that Hebrew word, Messiah. And so for Mark to assign the title Messiah or Christ to Jesus does two things for his reader. One, this denotes Davidic lineage. But two, it also underscores Jesus' humanity. Two very important things. With the word Messiah or Christ, Mark then is connecting an older story known as the Old Testament with a new one. In fact, he is saying this is all one story, but here is the fulfillment of everything that we had been waiting for. And those who read or followed the teachings of the Old Testament knew that God had promised one to come from the line of David, a son of David, in fact, who would rescue God's people from their sin. In fact, in 2 Samuel 7, God says this to David himself. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And of course, the question for those that read this was, who is this going to be? And when are they going to get here? And for Mark, the offspring of David, as it were, has finally arrived in Jesus Christ. The kingdom for Mark is being established. It is here. This is the great announcement Mark is offering and making But Mark is not set to keep it there. He wants to go further. And and while the use of the word Messiah or Christ connects Jesus to King David and thus speaks of his humanity, Mark boldly attaches another phrase there that you notice in in your text, the Son of God. This will be Mark's blue chip phrase, if you will, throughout the book, culminating in the climax of the book itself. As we said earlier, when we read of the words of the Gentile Roman satyrian gazing upon Jesus on the cross, saying, truly, this was the son of God. And by attaching these words to Mark's gospel, the son of God, Mark ascribes then what divinity to Jesus. It is with these words, friends, that Mark draws his line in the sand for any who would follow this Christ or be a disciple of this man. Because to attach divinity to Jesus was to turn an old, tired, even a old, tired out announcement of a possible Messiah into something new, potent, something viral that challenged the rulers and kings of this earth, something Nero could not abide. With these words, Mark gives his people and us too a true euangelion, a true announcement, a true gospel that has power and hope that speaks of a different type of king and a different type of kingdom. For Mark, all you see is not all that there is. And because of this, Mark doesn't tell those who are suffering persecution in Rome to run, as you see. He never tells them to get out of there. In fact, he does the opposite. Mark gives them something to help them stand in the midst of dying. He gives them a reason to consider that dying today might not be the worst thing that could happen to you. He gives them a new king to follow and kingdom to belong to. A king who actually knows suffering, but of a kingdom that will endure and last forever. To strip it all down, Mark's response to those in Rome who are suffering is to give them Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. Now, let me ask you this. Is this what you want someone to do for you in the face of being set on fire? Write you a gospel? It's rhetorical. I don't know about you, but that sobers me. It sobers me as a minister, and as I even reflect on that, consider how good we have it today. But it also makes me ask, am I following the same Jesus that these people are following? If not, who (laughs) or what am I following? It makes me ask, would reading Mark's gospel be enough for me if I were in their shoes? Hmm. Good questions for small groups tonight, perhaps. Because here's what's interesting about this is that this was enough for them. This was enough for Mark's readers in that day uh, to remain in those places and to suffer that persecution that Nero brought upon them, to consider and to say, okay, I'll serve him. I will follow him no matter where it takes me, no matter what what it does to me or my family. And they did just that by the thousands. And just like that, thousands too were murdered for it. When I hear that, that this was enough for them, that also makes me curious. And I wish the same for you as we begin this series. It makes me excited even to travel through Mark to see why this Jesus was enough for them. To give up their lives. To stand there. To not run. Though many probably did. And to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amongst whatever Nero would throw at them. What would, what would move or prompt someone to do something like that? That is what we are after as we begin the book of Mark. As we look to study it. As we look to see who this Jesus is. Why he is worthy of our following. And why we might consider the cost of what it might, might be to follow him where we are. But before we leave... Let me give us, though, one consideration that might have caused not just these Christians in this first century to follow him amongst such such conditions, but what might also be uh, for us an encouragement to do the same. And that is, Mark says, as we read in chapter 10, verse 45, that this Jesus, this Messiah, this Son of God did what? Came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for sinners. Now, when did Nero ever do that? When did Nero ever love like that? As you consider the things that you follow, and the people that you follow, and the kings that we enthrone, we have to ask the question: is what are they what are they doing for you? And here At the end of that question, Mark gives us this announcement of this king, of this son of God who did not come to be served, but to serve, to offer his life as a ransom for many, to die. Perhaps it's here that we, like the Roman centurion, gazing upon Jesus on the cross, are moved to say, and perhaps even consider in new ways this spring, Maybe this is the son of God. Surely this is the son of God. Because if that's true, friends, if this this Jesus that Mark proclaims and tells us about is the son of God, then it is good and it is right for you to dethrone whatever whatever you have put as king to dethrone those things, to put Jesus there and to follow him no matter what the cost it is good and right to do so we all got to serve somebody who is it what is it why welcome to the gospel of mark next week we will look at the beginning chapter one as we consider and look at this this calling of one in the wilderness john the baptist to make way for our lord let me pray for us Heavenly Father, give you thanks for Mark's gospel. We give you thanks for the, for the world in which he wrote and to whom he wrote it to, and how, though there are many years between that audience and where we live today, we are all dealing with the same things. We are all wrestling with who we will follow, who we will serve who we believe will give us the things that our heart desires. And the reality is, is we don't know what we want and need until we see Jesus. And so I pray for us as we go through this book that that you will show yourself through Mark's gospel in a way uh, that will drive us to lay down the things that we follow, that we will take up the cost of what it means to follow this Jesus and we'll do so for your glory alone. We ask this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.